So we're not going to share this, but I want you to think to yourself, uh, what did your parents do when you admitted doing something wrong uh, that you shouldn't have done? What did your parents do if you had to go to them and say, uh, hey, I, I know I did this, I wasn't supposed to, um, what would you think that they would do? How would they respond? And I think a lot of times um, we get worried about telling something we did. Uh, I sat down, so now my body's cut off. And a lot of times I think we worry about um, telling somebody something or even asking somebody for something because we're afraid of how they'll respond. We think, okay, Maybe you've never seen this person respond to something done wrong, or maybe you've never seen them ask for something, and you're just like, I just don't know how they're going to take this. Are they going to be really hard on me? Are they going to be you know, really judgmental? Are they going to be mad? Um, and we think, like, I, I don't want to tell them this because we get all this anxiety before we even talk to them because we're afraid of what will happen. Um, or maybe you've seen them respond poorly uh, to somebody else saying, like, hey, I messed up, you know, maybe it's at work, I messed up this project, or, like, I'm behind, I'm not going to meet the deadline, and you saw how they responded to that person. But even if we've seen people respond well to things, um, maybe somebody said, I'm sorry I hurt you, and the person was just like, I forgive you, like, you know, it's all good. We'll still even be afraid to talk to that person about what we did wrong, because we just don't like bringing uh, something we've done that we weren't supposed to do, or a failure we've made to other people. And today we're talking about uh, the best topic we ever could talk about, and as the goal is every week we're talking about this topic, which is the gospel. Um, but it's not normally that the actual message title is just the gospel. Well, on your bulletins, it's king, kingdom message. We started off with kingdom prayers. What does it look like? How did Jesus pray to his father? How does he view his father? What are the types of things that beloved children of God should be praying for. And then last week we talked about kingdom workers, that Jesus is saying, look, there's more people that need to be told the gospel than there are people telling people about the gospel. And he's like, so we need to get out there and be kingdom workers. There's like Jesus' classified ad for people to uh, get involved in the kingdom work. And today we're talking about the kingdom message. What is the message that we are spreading? What is it that Jesus sends us out to do? And the gospel if I was to give you just a sum of it, is the, the good news about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. The good news about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. And it's in the gospel, we hear the truth about what God is like, that this is what the God of the universe, what his character is like, what his attributes are like, how does he treat people. And it's very important for us to have an accurate view of God because your view of God will grow the fruit in your life. If you want to think about your behaviors, your actions, your attitude as like the fruit growing in your life, there's something down at the root that's growing that fruit. And what's down at the root, one of the things down at the root is your view of God. And I also argue another thing down at the root is that your community will grow the fruit in your life. The community you're a part of and your view of God, those both are shaped, uh, inter, inter, uh, intertwined. Um, but the if... If we wanted to look at ourselves and say, hey, we're not behaving, we're not acting in the way we ought to act, we, I shouldn't stand up here, and none of us should say to each other, we just need to get it together, behave differently, this is what you're doing, stop doing that, start doing this. Now, if there's ever a problem with our behavior, we should go down to the root and see, well, what's at the root down there? What is our view of God? What are our beliefs about God? That's what's growing this fruit in our life. And so if we're seeing fruit in our life, behaviors, attitudes that don't align with the gospel. We should go back to the gospel to figure out where have we uh, missed it here. 
And so today we're talking about our view of God. It's kind of like thinking if there's a problem downstream, like our behaviors come back upstream because there's a blockage or something polluting the water uh, upstream. Where's the blockage? And we're going to do two passages this morning, and I'm not going to be like super in-depth in either of them, but the first one is Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter, yeah, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And there's really kind of four or three parts to this passage, uh, or really two, if you want to break it down. There's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, that's the, the bad news. That's where we are at without God. And it describes, it says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And you might, and then you might wonder, okay, that's the diagnosis. You're dead in your sins. You're not spiritually alive. Like we're all walking around, but we've been disconnected from the source of life, almost like a, a plant. I was, I was uh, trimming our peonies. They just get huge and flop over. But as soon as I clip one of those flowers off of the rest, it's, it's on its way. To, it's dead. I mean, it's disconnected from the source of life. It's going to look good alive for a while, but it's dead. And so we may look kind of alive spiritually, but we're dead because we've been disconnected from the one who gives us life, spiritual life. And so you might wonder, well, how did this happen? And it's under three influences. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what are the influences that have brought that about? Following the course of this world, meaning we're aligning ourselves with how the world lives and views humanity and salvation and sin uh, and instead of with God. We're following the prince of the power of the air, which is uh, another way to defer to the devil or Satan, who is the very first one who lured humanity away um, with deception, lured us away from God. And then it says, uh, in the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And that's talking about internally. We have these external influences, but we also have this spirit that is in us that is contrary to God, that's hostile to God, that rejects God. And it says, uh, verse 3, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So all of humanity, this is all our state, our problem without God, that we are, as it calls, children of wrath, which is meaning what characterizes us is that we are under God's just judgment for betraying him, for turning our backs on him, for rejecting him, and it's like there's consequences to that. If there's a king... And he's saying, here's what it looks like to live in my kingdom. I'm in charge. And we say, yeah, I don't really like you being in charge, so I'm going to do things my own way. The king's not going to be like, okay. Uh, there's consequences to that. If you break the law, if you reject the king, there's consequences. So the issue is that we're under God's judgment, the penalty for rejecting him. And so that's the first part. What's our condition without God, without Jesus? And then verse 4, If you, while you're reading the Bible, if you just look for times where you see those two words, but... God, um, usually that's, here's the bad news, how things have really gone wrong, and now here's how God has stepped in. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So we have, this is where we're at, and then it's, but God did something. And then we would ask, well, what motivated God to do this? What's the reason that he would come and step into our situation of deadness and make us alive together uh, with Jesus? 
Well, not anything in us. That's what these verses tell us, that what motivates God? He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Uh, and then by grace you've been saved and we've been seated with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. And so God took action because of God, not because of us that he was motivated by. He's like, well, they're so good and they're trying so hard or oh, I just can't, I can't stand to lose them. It was, no, because God's rich in mercy, because, because God has this great love for us, because he has this gracious disposition toward us, because he is, has a measurable riches of kindness. God was motivated to act to save us because of God. We stood under his judgment. We were dead. We we're sinners, children of wrath. And as our statement of faith said, says, sinners by nature and by choice, following Satan in the ways of the world. But God, because of what? His grace, his kindness, his love came in and changed that. Not because uh, we did something to impress him, not because we're so great, not because we had so much faith, not because we were so lovable, no, but God's rich in mercy, that even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, turned from him, rejecting him, betraying him, he said, I'm going to come and do something about this. And so he says our salvation is a display, verse 7, of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is that? It's because, as he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, verse 8. If you want to pick two verses to memorize, to remember what the gospel is all about, be Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. And so it's not like we met God halfway, or he went 90, we went 10. Anybody you seen Hitch? No, no. Okay, never mind. Uh, it's not like, uh, it's also like we have this bill to pay, and God's like, hey, um, I'm willing to pay half of it if you're willing to, you know, kind of split the bill with me, split the check. No, all the way. It's not your own doing. That No one can boast. It's not anything you've done that says... Uh, this is what I've contributed to my salvation. We don't contribute anything except the need for our salvation. And God does the whole thing. By grace we've been saved. And grace, I think a, a good definition of grace is, it means undeserved, unearned favor. And you think of the word favorite, that favor kind of connects to it. It's like, oh, that's my favorite ice cream. Or that's my favorite movie. Or we, if this would be bad to say that's my favorite child. <laughs> it shouldn't be favorites. But imagine God's treating us as his favorite. He treats all of us as his favorite. He's giving us this favor of like, I just love them so much. And I have uh, so much um, in my heart that wells up that I just want to be with them. And so there's nothing we can say, I brought this to, to the table uh, with God. And that's what I contributed to my salvation. No, nothing. I'm not our own doing. And then the last verse, 2.10, it's that we were, verses 1 through 3 tell us what we were saved for, or saved from. This is what you're saved from, verses 1 through 3, dead in your sins. And then verses 4 through 9, this is what you've been saved by. So you're saved from something, you're saved by God. And then verse 10 is, uh, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved from something. We're saved by something, and we're saved for something. We're not just saved from this, so it's like, yay, now we just kind of get a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's now, no, God has saved us from something, and he saved us for something that we would return back to uh, our purpose of living for him. And so all of our problems in life really grow out of one common problem. 
our relationship with God is broken. The deepest and most damaging problem we have in life is a broken relationship with God. And from God's side of things, there's no reason that this relationship can't be repaired and restored because he's done everything necessary. It's just our response to it. He's ready, waiting, and even eager to forgive people who rejected him and betrayed him. So that's kind of an explanation of what is the kingdom message that we are about. Luke 15, uh, which is the next passage, it's on page um, 874, if using the black Bibles we use in here. So page 874, it's Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32, page 874. And so we just heard kind of an explanation, uh, and Luke 15, 11 through 32 is a picture what we just heard. It's like, if you could paint a picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Luke 15 would be a great uh, story, picture of it. And um, you probably know this story, as, or perhaps have at least heard of it, or we use it, you know, you know, the prodigal has returned home, and this is what it comes from, the prodigal son. The word prodigal is like an old word. It means basically extravagant, uh, like very, let's just pouring out riches or just using up stuff, just ex- extravagant and generous. And why it's called the prodigal son is because the son goes off and he just has this extravagant lifestyle, wastes all his inheritance, uses up all his money. And But then we'll find out that there's actually uh, another character in the story who's also extravagant. And so why, well, why does Jesus tell this story, the story of the prodigal son? And we see the reason he tells us in uh, verses 1 through 2 of Luke 15. I'm going to turn there quick so I can read those two verses. So Luke 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's like these three groups present, or three characters present. Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him, and he's eating with them, hanging out with them. Tax collectors, you might be like, what's that about? I mean, these are people who betrayed their country, basically, the country of Israel, working for the Roman government, taking money from their own people for them, their own benefit. And then, I mean, sinners are just people, it's, I mean, it might be, we would walk around and be like, you know, here's where all the sinners hang out, or here's, you know, I don't know what it would be, at the bars or whatever it is. It's like, here's the people we know are living a godless life. And now what's happening is Jesus is here, that group of people is drawing near to Jesus, hanging around him. And then the third characters in the story are the Pharisees and scribes, grumbling, saying, this man is receiving sinners and eating with them. Why is he hanging out with the prostitutes? Why is he hanging out, hanging out with the tax collectors? Why is he hanging out with the drunks and the poor and the people who've made a mess of their lives? He's hanging out with all these people and they're grumbling. And Jesus sees this and now he tells three stories. And so what we'll see in these stories is that these people, the people grumbling, need a correction to their view of God. They don't see God as he is. And Jesus can see the fruit in their life. They are grumbling and complaining about who Jesus is hanging around with. And then he goes to a deeper place than, hey, quit your grumbling, like, knock that off. You should be you know, happy that they're here. He doesn't go to the behavior, the fruit. He goes down to the root and shows them, your view of God is off. You aren't seeing God as he really is. And so he sees your hearts aren't reflecting God's heart. And so he corrects their view of God. And he tells these three stories or, or parables to correct them and invite them to see God in a new way. First he tells this parable of the lost sheep. 
Then he tells this parable of the lost coin. Then he tells a parable or story of the lost son. And in all of them, it's there's something lost, and then it's found, and there's great rejoicing. The, the sheep is lost. The shepherd goes out to find the sheep. When it's found, he brings it back home and rejoices. And Jesus says, that's what it's like when a sinner, somebody who's far from God, turns back to God. There's this party in heaven. There's a coin. A woman's looking for it. It's lost. She finds it. throws a party. I found it. God throws a party in heaven whenever someone who's lost is found. And then lastly, the longest one is about um, this father and son, or two sons. And so I'll read <clears throat> the first chunk, verses 11 through 16. And this is really focusing on the younger son and his father. So chap- Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 16. And he said, meaning Jesus, there is a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And so we're introduced to the characters, a man and two sons. The younger son comes and says, I want my inheritance now, which is a weird thing to ask, because you get your inheritance when your parent dies, not before they're dead. And he's basically kind of saying, I just kind of wish you were dead now so I could have this stuff. And uh, ridiculously, the father actually agrees to give it to him. And so he would be getting rid of part of his inheritance. It's almost like if your grandparent or parents are still alive and you're going through your house putting little sticky notes on the things that you want. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just picking out the stuff I want when you die. Um, And actually, it would be kind of great if I could just take it home now. Can I just do that? And you'd be like, that's really offensive. That, That wouldn't be very respectful to your parents or loving. You're basically saying, I just want your stuff. I'm not really interested in you anymore. And so... Uh, Father gives it to him, and then the son goes off and spends it all. This is why he's called the prodigal son. He is reckless living, spends it all, extravagant living. And then there's a famine. He doesn't have any of his stuff left. He starts to work for somebody over where he moved to, and he's working with the pigs. And he's looking at what the pigs are eating, the pig slop or whatever they're getting, and he's like, man, I would like to have some of that. This is like how desperate he is. Like he's poor, homeless, doesn't have anything, doesn't have any money, can't pay for things. So that's the younger son and the father. And then verses 17 through 24, the younger son repents, and we see the father's response. So Luke 15, 17 through 24. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead." And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So we're told that the younger son came to himself, realizing, you know, it's almost like the light bulb went on. We might say, 
what's a, how would we say this? We don't usually came to say came to myself. It was like, all of a sudden he said this moment where he was seeing himself clearly, like, what am I doing here? I, I left my father thinking my life would be better if I just had his stuff and moved out. And now look at me. I'm just wanting what the pigs eat. And he's thinking, surely it's better to be a servant in my dad's house. I'm not worthy to be a son anymore, but surely being a servant in my dad's house is better off than this position I'm in. So he has this realization, and so he uh, works up this you know, speech he's going to give. You know, God, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. And so what, can I just be, please be a servant in your house? Maybe he's thinking, I want to work, work off. I want to earn my way back. I took all this money and all this inheritance, and now I just want to make up for it. I'm not even good enough to be called your son. And so he arose, came back to his father. And then perhaps those verses we've read would be Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is the condition of this son. And then verse uh, 20, halfway through it, he arose and came to his father. But, so we could say, but God, or but the father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so it's like, the father is not sitting on the porch thinking, well, this ought to be good. Uh, what is he, what's, how, how dare he come back to this house? Like, does he know how much he dishonored me? How much of a fool he made me look like? He goes off and he thinks he's just going to come back home. He's not thinking, you know, working up his little speech of what am I going to say to him? Or maybe all these years he's been thinking, if that son ever comes back, here's what I, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. That's what I'm going to tell him. And, but what he does is the opposite of what we would expect. Well, if, his son, still a long way off, saw him, felt compassion. If you remember last week, we talked about what does Jesus see when he looks at this crowd? He feels compassion because he sees sheep, people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And here, Jesus, the, the father sees his son, feels compassion, runs out to him, embraces him, and kisses him before the son even says anything, just welcoming him back. And then the son begins his speech. Father... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before you can get to the whole thing where he says, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The father uh, interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. The son, I mean, he can't afford food even. So he's all dirty. He's got, you know, ratty clothes on. Or perhaps he's missing some clothes. And he says, bring the best robe, which would have been his robe. The father would have had the best robe. Bring, bring my robe, I'll bring the best one. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. The, fa- the son doesn't even get his full apology out. He's not even saying, I'm sorry, I feel really bad. Here's why I feel bad. It's just like he can't even get it out of his mouth before the father's just like, no, come on, like, well, let, let's celebrate your back home. Puts his robe on and puts his feet, uh, shoes on him. So this is the younger son repenting. He's like, this is the way I was living. I didn't love you. Now I've turned back. And now this is the father's response to him. And then verses 25 through 32, we started with the younger son and the father. And now it's the older son and the father. Verse 25, it says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so the three characters in this match up with the three characters that are present in verses 1 through 2 of why Jesus told this story. You have the tax collectors and sinners, you have Jesus, or God, and then you have the Pharisees and the scribes. And the tax collectors and sinners, they've gone off, they've messed up their lives, they've you know done everything they shouldn't do, and they came back, and now Jesus is allowing them to draw near to him. And Jesus is talking to them, having a party with them, feasting with them. And then you have the Pharisees and scribes on the outside saying, how could you do this? Do you, do you know what kind of people these are? They haven't followed the commands. They're not good people. They're not living righteous lives. They're not going to the temple. They're not doing all the things they're supposed to do. How in the world can you be hanging out with them? How can you be feasting with them, treating them like you love them and God loves them? And the older son is the scribes and Pharisees. And so the question, notice that the father goes out to bring both sons in. The younger son is repenting. He goes out and brings them in. The older son is outside angry. He goes out and wants to bring him in. And Jesus leaves the story hanging uh, without saying what the older son does because he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees, are you going to repent? Are you going to come to the party? Or are you going to stand on the outside of it mad and grumpy that God is doing this for these people? So why is Jesus the way he is? And why are the religious leaders the way they are? It's because of their views of God. Our view of God grows the fruits in our life. It grows the behavior and the attitude in our lives. And so do we see God how Jesus sees God? And so he's telling these religious leaders, look, you have a completely, you're completely off in how you're seeing God. Let me tell this story so that you can begin to see God properly. You see, God is the kind of father that when he sees his son, his child repenting, he runs out to them, he embraces them, showers them with affection, he puts, he clothes them, doesn't even let them get their whole you know, apology out before he's saying, let's go and celebrate. You're home, you're alive, you were dead, and now you're alive again, you're lost, and now you're found. And he's saying, is that your view of God? Do you have a view of God like that? Because he's saying, I have that view of God, and that's what you're seeing, but you're mad about it. And so is the God that, Jesus is saying, is the God that you worship a God of ridiculously extravagant grace? Is, he, is the God you worship someone who goes out and embraces the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that have messed up their lives beyond repair, that he's a God waiting on the porch to run to his children that are returning home to him? Is your God one who showers people with affection, who throws a big party when a sinner comes home to him? And he's saying... You, it's obvious you have a problem here. And what's interesting in this story is that the uh, older son doesn't really love who his father is. His father is generous, gracious, loving, forgiving, merciful, compassionate. Because when he sees his father doing that to his younger brother, he's mad about it. And he's saying, you didn't throw a party for me. He's in it for the stuff. He wants his father's stuff. He doesn't really love who his father is. He doesn't admire him. He doesn't say, I want to be like my dad. He's not doesn't think to the community like, my dad is so great, I'd like to be him someday. He's thinking, 
This guy just lets this, this son off the hook. He spent it all, he messed up his life, wasted all of our resources, and then he just lets him off the hook. You can't do that. You gotta, he's got to be held accountable for this. And so our view of God has a direct effect on whether we will talk to others about him, of whether we love him, respect him, and want other people to admire him as well. So why is Jesus the way he is? Why are the religious leaders the way they are? Because they have radically different views of God. And what we see, I return to this story again and again, when I feel like I've messed up, and it's like, what does God think of me right now when I've sinned, when I've failed, when I've done what I know I shouldn't have done, when I've had a bad attitude? Maybe nobody saw it, but I felt it. How does God treat me in that moment? Is it, I've got to be in the doghouse for a while? Is it, I've got to work my way back into his favor for him to like me, for him to love me, for him to enjoy me being around? No, as soon as I say, I've messed up. It's like we're like going this direction in sin, running away from it. It's like, I've messed up. And before I can even turn around, he's already running to me to embrace me with love and compassion. And it's, this is just a radical view of what God is like. It's like the opposite of what we tend to think that God is like. This is how Jesus wants us to see God, though. This is Jesus saying, I want you to see him how I see him. And so if we don't look like Jesus when we're interacting with people who are far from God, like this younger son, then we ought to wonder, am I seeing God the same way Jesus sees God? Do I we want faith in Jesus? We also want the faith of Jesus, that our view of God is in alignment with Jesus' view of God. And Jesus' audience for this story is people who don't care about people far from God. They don't care about lost people. They're too busy judging them to get to know them. They're too busy looking down on them to take interest in their lives. They're too busy comparing themselves to care. And they separate. They do their religious God stuff. And those people don't. And they're so wrapped up in being God's people, in doing church things, in doing religious things, that they have lost touch with God's heart for people that aren't in that group. And that they're saying, we do the God stuff, we're God's people. And those people outside... Well, they've messed up on their own anyway. We're better than them. Thank God we're not like them. And so Jesus' life reflects the heart of God. And the question is, does ours? And we talked last week about how the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And there are more people that need to hear about Jesus than there are people telling them about Jesus. That's what that means, that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And people are desperate to hear what God is like because we all feel something's wrong and something's missing in my life. If you got really deep down to it, maybe not everyone would say it that way, but it's like people feel something's wrong, something's broken about this world, and I feel like something's broken in me, and I'm doing things to try and heal that, to repair that. And people also feel like something's missing. It's just like I'm looking for that thing that will make me feel whole and complete. And the reason they feel is like this younger son, the, the son that ran away, and all of a sudden he comes to himself. It's like, what have I done I've broken this relationship with my father and I'm missing the things that I need. And then he comes back and maybe he didn't even know that he needed his father's love, but he came back and he got it. And the same thing with this older son. Something's broken about his attitude, how he's viewing God. He's, he's trying to live without God by being good. Uh, the younger son was trying to live without God by being bad. Both of them are lost. Both of them have a broken relationship with God. Both of them are separated, alienated from their father. and Both need to be brought in as the father showed us. And so what motivates us? What drives us? What compels us to talk to people about Jesus? And it's God's love that he's shown us. That 
This is how he's treated us, that he's run out to us. And now that's good news worth sharing. And so we tell people about God's, how God has run out to us in love, and we show it. And we want to go to people like God went to people. That We, are, uh, we want to go to people who would never come to us. And we want to show them this is what God's love is like, that it's pursuing people far from him. As Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. Now he sends us to do the same, that we are God's pursuing, unrelenting, uh, extravagant love going out to people in our lives. And this whole story is the good news. Is that it, Luke 15, this is what our God is like. That's the good news, that God is like this, that it doesn't matter how far you are from him, how long you've been that far from him, what the bad things you've done are, or the good things you've done to try and not need him, it's, he's just willing to bring you into the party and come and embrace us with all the love and compassion that uh, he has in him. Let's pray. Father, this, we could just look at this story that your son has given us for hours and consider ourselves, see ourselves in it, see which son we are, and Lord, we just we want it in our hearts. We want to feel it inside of us. Feel the, the joy and the delight and the relief that this is what you really like. That when we turn to you, when anybody turns to you, that you run out to embrace us with love and affection and compassion and that you bring us in. You don't keep us at a distance. You don't make us earn our way back or show that we deserve it or prove ourselves, but you just come and you pull us close. You throw a party of joy Lord, would you let this image of you be deep in our hearts? Would you send us in the world to show it to others? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.